It's time for the Brotherly Love Podcast. Keeping it real on the Philly sports scene since 2014. Listen, I love the Philadelphia Eagles, but we all know drafting hasn't been their forte. That's the opponent. Shake his hand and get to the damn locker room. Whether it's the fight in Bills, the Birds, the Fly Guys, the Process, or a national headline, these two beauties are talking sports with a passion only Philly fans can comprehend. Here's your host, Joe O'Donnell. I mean, the Eagles had that game, and I hate the Saints. So, like, put them at the top of my list now. With the Cowboys, the Giants, the Redskins, the Vikings are up there. Screw them. The Patriots. I hate the Saints now. And John Mita. Jimmy Butler was your best player. So this offseason, I don't care how many millions it takes. It is the Brotherly Love Podcast. It's been a minute. Certainly, here on SoundCloud and iTunes, we welcome you back. Thanks for everyone tuning in. Myself, Joe O'Donnell, and John Mita. And uh, certainly a lot of shaking down over the last couple weeks. Apologize for the long hiatus, but again, we appreciate all the love and support on SoundCloud and iTunes. Johnny Mita, what's up, my good friend? Well, let's let's talk about this hiatus, Joe. It's pretty exciting, the fact that my partner got the opportunity to call his first NHL games on the radio. So what was that experience like for you, Joe? It was unbelievable, man. It was uh, it was as good as advertised. It was probably better than I could have imagined from a standpoint that the Minnesota Wild played pretty well. They won a couple of games. They scored a bunch of goals. I felt comfortable. Um, the staff was, like, awesome. Just made it such an easy transition on me. I know a lot of those people from over the years. So that helped. And, uh, and really, just I don't know if it could have gone better. And I mean, the thing that kind of stunk is I was gone for ten days, and and that was sort of a long, another long road trip for me. But um, other than that, other than being away from from the family back in Iowa, it was awesome. The uh, the showing of support from fr- friends, family, colleagues, former colleagues, players that uh, I've known over the years, GMs and coaches. Like it was, it was awesome, dude. It was almost overwhelming at times, and. Uh, and I wouldn't have traded for anything in the world. It was well worth it and very rewarding from a standpoint of being in this business for 15 years and finally sort of achieving the dream. So it was awesome, man. Thanks for asking. Oh, yeah, no problem, buddy. And congrats. And uh, keep up the good work, and I'm sure you're going to find you're there permanently at some point, my brother. Well, that'd be awesome. Thanks again, my friend. All right, let's dive into it. Uh, We've got a lot to get into. We'll talk about the somewhat struggling Philadelphia 76ers. We'll talk about a couple of national topics, including some sign stealing in Major League Baseball that has grabbed uh, some big-time headlines in the last couple of weeks. But we'll start, like we do most podcasts, especially during football season, with the Philadelphia Eagles, who are now 5-5. Five and five. When we last left the Birds on our last podcast, they were scuffling. They were able to sort of pick up their game and get their act together before the bye week. And I don't know if you could say a bye, a bye week comes at a bad time. But I kind of felt like it, it came at a bad time for the Eagles because they looked rusty coming out of the bye at home against the New England Patriots. Yes, they got out to a 10 nothing lead, but it could have been more in the early going while the Patriots were coming off the bye and sort of starting to find themselves a bit. Eagles eventually fall 17-10. to The Pats are now 9-1. and The Eagles are a game back plus a tiebreaker in the NFC East as the Cowboys are 6-4. and You were at the game. I had a tough time watching the second half, being as I had uh, some broadcast responsibilities back with the Iowa Wild. So I didn't have the sound on for the second half. Missed some plays. Apparently I missed, you know, uh, a couple of big drops. Shocker. But uh, 17-10, the Eagles lose. Up next for them, the Seahawks. But what was the link like? What stands out to you, John Mita? Where do we begin? Where do we start? I mean, it was just a game where even though the Eagles go up 10 nothing, you just never felt comfortable um, with the struggles on offense and most notably having a couple starters out of the game, which we found out at the uh, pretty much the middle of the week with what well, Howard wasn't going to play. Alshon Jeffrey was out. You know, these guys were coming off the bye week. You think everybody's ready to go and ready to fire. And it turns out a couple couple of our key pieces are not going to be able to uh, play in the game. It's just the same old story with this football team, and it sucks. Um, the Patriots, I, I was pretty confident thinking that this was a game that we could find a way to win, but you just you just look at it, and it, it's, it's just an ongoing team, you know, throughout the course of the year. The drops. I mean, this wide receiving core, Joe, 
I have never seen a worse wide receiving core in the entire NFL. And let's take Deshaun Jackson and Alshon Jeffrey out of the equation. When you have to line up and start with Nelson Aguilar, Matt Collins, and Jordan Matthews, who you literally just plucked off the street that week, it's just not a good recipe. And Carson had a lot of struggles. He missed a lot of throws. Um, he definitely has to shoulder some of the blame of this loss. There's no doubt about it. You know, he gets the ball first and 10, 26-yard line. It's his turn to basically have that defining moment. You know, was this going to be the game I set up before the game started? Was this going to be the game where he just has that defining moment and he just basically wills his team to victory? But when you throw out slop like that, and I just look around all around the National Football League, and all these other teams have wide receivers, their thirds, their fourth, their fifth stringers that are just making plays. And look at the other side of the ball. Tom Brady hasn't always had like the best wide receivers, but he got he, he has players that'll make make plays for him. And Nelson Aguilar, eh, just absurd. In the last seven games, Joe, this guy's averaged twenty two receiving yards. To show how historically pathetic the Eagles wide receiving core has been this year. They have a total, a total, everyone that is lined up at the position this year of 93 catches. Michael Thomas alone, the great wide receiver from the New Orleans Saints, has 94 receptions. Just to put things in perspective, when we used to kill James Thrash and Todd Pinkston and Torrin Small and Charles Johnson, right now, I would welcome them. Right now, a guy like Riley Cooper would probably be the number one wow. wide receiver <laughs> on, the, on this football team. And I'm not even kidding. And that's how sick it is at the trade deadline. How come we didn't make a move for a wide receiver? you got a guy like Josh Gordon. I know he comes with a great amount of baggage. But what do you have to lose? You're higher up in the waiver order than Seattle. All you have to do is put in the claim. If he doesn't work out, you pay him a couple million dollars, he goes away, you readdress the position in the offseason. It's just this lack of moves. Did they just essentially give up on the season? Did they not want to give up their draft capital because they thought that they weren't going anywhere? But a lot of people want to talk about all the issues with Carson Wentz. Can he get it done? How can we judge a guy? How can we honestly assess his quarterback play when he's just given some of the most terrible weapons the NFL has ever seen. Well, it's a great point, and you said it perfectly right there, ending it with how can we judge him fairly, and I think that's something that needs to be part of the equation. And it's funny you bring up Stinkston and Trash, because it was part of our intro for a long time here on the Brotherly Love Podcast. You can follow us on Twitter at Love Podcast. And I was thinking about that the other day, too, like, at just how bad the wide receiving group is, and it takes you back to the McNabb years. In a lot of ways, the last couple of, or maybe just this season, has sort of been like a McNabb-type Eagles team, especially lately with the defense playing better and the offense just seemingly short on big plays and some of the missed throws. Like, that was a McNabb special of a game from Carson Wentz on Sunday. And I have a reason why I think some of that occurred. I'll get there in a moment. But you threw out that stat about Michael Thomas with more catches than the entire Eagles roster. Eagles wide receivers have 75 or fewer receiving yards combined in six of the last seven games. That is unbelievable. And yet the Eagles have won four of those six. 75 combined or fewer receiving yards from wide receivers in six of the last seven games. Now, I guess the big thing for me, John Mita, and, and as much as I want to trash this group of wide receivers, and even at times this year, Alshon included, and I got a soft spot for him, but these guys just have no confidence right now, and that is such a huge part of the equation. Nelson Aguilar has made plays in his NFL career. Consistently, really never. Obviously, he took himself out of a game for crying out loud because he was so mentally fragile. But we've seen guys make plays in their career, albeit a small sample size for the Mac Hollins of the world, and now these guys literally either aren't getting open, can't catch the football, or some combination in between. So as bad as they are, these guys have gotten to this level for a reason, and at least in, in stretches have shown the ability to do something. It just has not happened at all this year, 
And I just think a lot of it is strictly confidence. And they're so rattled now. The entire city knows they stink. The entire narrative of this team is that they stink. And so nobody's able to just rise above and make a big play. The tight ends have been infected with the drops. Ertz and Goddard and even drops by the running backs. I mean, I just don't get that part of it. But it has infected and sort of plagued the whole team. And and quite frankly, it's absolutely embarrassing. The Lane Johnson injury was certainly a big, a big storyline. And I've got these numbers for you. I don't know if you saw them on ESPN. But before Lane Johnson was hurt, the Eagles were up 10 points. Afterwards, obviously, they gave up the next 17. They gave up five sacks. Wentz's completion percentage went down a whopping 24%, and the yards per dropback fell off by almost a yard per pass attempt. Now, did they throw it too much? Did Doug Peterson, Poopy Peterson, abandon the run game? Yeah, I think he did, and I don't think that's anything that he's hiding from. And again, this fan base and the media, I don't want to say crushing him over, but we've been down this road before. He just has a tendency to abandon the run, whether it's warranted or not, and it was like they were down three touchdowns when they were only down seven points, essentially, the entire second half. Yeah, I mean, it's the abandoning of the run game. I mean, that has been the winning formula the entire yeah. season. I mean, anytime we've won games, we've run the ball at least 20 times. You know, Carson Wentz to throw that ball 40 times to who? The three Stooges? Like, yeah. come on, man. Yeah, like, it's unnecessary to put him in that spot. Yeah, I mean, the silver lining of that game for me is the defense played tremendous. Yep. I mean, if you're going to hold out, granted, that's not a Patriots offense like it's been clicking in years past. But um, Still, they've been putting up 35 yeah. or so points most weeks. The only Absolutely. game they struggled was against Buffalo to score, and then obviously yeah. their lone loss to the Ravens. But other than that, they've been sort of a juggernaut offensively. I'm not sure how. They don't have a ton of weapons. But between the scheme and a guy like Brady, they were finding ways to get it done. Now, Brady admitted uh, yesterday to WEEI in Boston that they've got a lot of problems on offense that need to get sorted out ASAP because the Eagles' D really, for the most part, kept everything in front of them. And Julian Edelman threw the Patriots' only freaking touchdown pass in the game. And I went back and watched that trick play a couple of times last night. I couldn't bring myself to watch the entire game. Uh, I just didn't want to do it. for the sake of my heart rate and my sanity. But Rodney McLeod, and this is the thing that bothered me. It was a third and 11, and they throw it sort of behind the line of scrimmage to Edelman. And the entire Eagles defense is thinking screen. And they come rushing up, and there were two blockers and three defenders around. So the Eagles actually had them outnumbered because Jenkins was up in the box. But McLeod was sort of in center field. He broke to the ball as well, and then that left... Uh, Edelman able to loft it over everybody and right to Dorsett, who was wide open. Rasul Douglas came back and put a hit on him, but it was too late at that point. So that was almost just over-aggressive. And the thing that frustrated me about watching the play, it was 3rd and 11. Like, Edelman's probably not, if that is a screen, going to get 11 yards on that play when you already had him sort of outnumbered. Like, Jenkins is going to come up, maybe make the tackle six yards after he catches it, and they're kicking a field goal. But they got a little over-aggressive there, got burnt. That was the game-winning touchdown. So that was certainly a big point in the football game. Now, one of the questions you and I talked about before we went on here on the Brotherly Love podcast, Johnny Mita, you posed a question to me, is Wentz regressing? You posed it. I'll let you answer it to start. I just, I, I don't think he is regressing. I just think that, you know, what is the coin to Andy Reid phrase? You know, I got to put my players in a better position to succeed. I just don't think he does Carson any favors. And I don't understand something with a play calling, right? We have two tight ends that can run, right? These tight ends between Goddard and Nurse that can run. How come these guys never go down the scene like Travis Kelsey does or like Gronkowski? Well, how about the play Goddard Goddard last year against the Cowboys where the the long touchdown, his helmet came, you know. Right. It was the play came back for a penalty, but that was right Right. up the seam and it would have changed the game. That's what I'm talking about. So the creativity, I just don't, they never move Wentz out of the pocket. If you look at one of his strengths, you have to tailor your offense to, to the player's strengths. One of his biggest strengths, in my opinion, just looking at him, is the fact that when he can get out of the pocket on the run, he throws seeds on yes. the run. Yes. But we never move the pocket. 
Look at a team like the Minnesota Vikings, what they've been doing the last couple weeks. They've been moving Kirk Cousins out of the pocket. If you kind of move it, and look what the Patriots did. They moved Brady out of the pocket. Now, a lot of it he had to throw away because nobody was getting open. But it just buys your quarterback more time to find somebody because our below-average wide receivers can't get open. But it's just no creativity. And I would go back to the 2017 season and look at, okay, what are the plays that Carson Wentz ran extremely well? And let's not, why not we incorporate those back into our offense? Look at what they did with Nick Foles in the Super Bowl, like when he went on that magical run. They essentially scrapped their entire offense and said, okay, what did he run under Chip Kelly? You know, and then all of a sudden the RPOs started flying back into the playbook. And they gave all these things that kept it simple. Yeah, and, and, I just think and, they and Johnny made simplify we, things. We talk. I agree. We talked about it after the Packers game, when the Eagles had that sort of early season on life support victory. They went into Green Bay on a short week. They ran the football with authority, and they ran a lot of those RPOs. The run game opened up play action, and they were quicker passes from Wentz, and he was able to spread the ball around, and he looked so comfortable, and. You know, when you get a quarterback out of the pocket, yes, it cuts down half the field, but it cuts down some of his reads and options. It simplifies things, as you just pointed out. And it's one of the things that you're right. He seems to do best on the run. He's more accurate for whatever reason. His mechanics in the pocket at times, throwing off his back foot, he's just throwing the ball too hard. He's high with a lot of throws. Like McNabb used to have those worm burner specials down at a guy's shoelaces. Wentz seems to be high with a lot of throws. you got to get him into a rhythm. And with the offensive line being battered all day, they never gave the offense a chance to get going because of some of the play calling. And it just drove me crazy from the parts of the game I was able to watch. It's like it was just missed opportunity, bad pass, drop, punt the ball. And the Patriots were content to just play the field position game because outside of the one long drive – the Eagles never got anything sustained going. Yeah, and the other thing is, you know, you look at coaching, too. Like, Lane Johnson goes out of the game. At this point, we all know what, you know, how Kuti Vitar, you know, we all know what he is a player, okay? Wouldn't it be nice, the fact that we could have put Andre Dillard maybe at right tackle if he got some reps there, knowing that Jason Peters is going to play in this game and, to be honest with you, I don't think I would have put Jason Peters. Back I know. I hear you. And, and let, let's just go right there. Let's just go right there because the nostalgia tour, like, I get it. The guy has earned everything he's got in his Hall of Fame career, and he's one of the best left tackles in the history of the NFL, and he has given the Eagles so much. But at some point, don't you have to have the balls to just say you lost your job to injury? Plain and simple. It happens all across sports. You just have to have the gall to say, no, you're not going back in until an opportunity presents itself. And right away, the questions were, he's our starting left tackle as soon as he's healthy. That's fine if you don't have a solution. But the reason that question is being asked by the media is because it's warranted. Why should he go back in if the kid's playing well? Exactly. And again, it's just another failure of the general manager. You know, Harry Rosen, we have to hold him accountable. And listen, as much as we love these older players, right? I mean, we love everything that Darren Sproles brought to yeah. the table. One and of every my time they've players. been re-signed and brought back, we've always, wow, another weapon. We've always commended it because our hearts right. get in the way. At the end of exactly. the day, some of these re-signings yep. and contract yep. extensions and keep bringing back the same guy, yep. it's feel good for the fans, and then they don't produce, yep. and it's like, what the hell? And, and, and that's the thing, Joe, and I just look at this last draft, right? Miles Sanders looks like he's going to be a good pick. I agree. Andre, Dill, Andre Dillard looks like he's going to be a good pick. I agree. Pick. Okay, beyond those two guys, okay, I don't really see anything else. Our Sega Whiteside, if we draft another damn receiver from the Pac-12, <laughs> I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to lose my mind. Okay, we need to draft from the, the SEC, the ACC, and like the Big Ten. You know, the Pac-12 is like the worst conference out of the Power Five. The other thing is you look at a team like the Oakland Raiders, right? They basically traded Amari Cooper. They collected all these damn draft picks. And look at what they did in the draft. They take a kid from Clemson with their first pick. 
Bing Farrell, defense end, he's playing great. Josh Jacobs at the end of the first round. Jonathan Abram. Then they take a defense end named Max Crosby. Then they take Hunter Renfro, another guy that played at Clemson. They might have hit on like six out of nine draft picks that are contributing this year, Joe. These guys are contributing this year. Whereas we've had drafts in the last three years, and none of these guys are contributing. The yeah. Sidney Jones pick, total bust. Hate to say, you know, it, it sucks. Total bust. And, and where does Howie Rosen think that we don't need speed in this league? You look at all the teams with the prolific offense. What do they all have? Speed. You know, the Kansas City Chiefs, speed. You know, they get a guy like Nicole Hardman. Like, it's just, it's just so frustrating because here's the deal, Joe. And, and you know, moving forward, look at the future. We still have Deshaun Jackson under contract. We don't know what he'll be next year. We still have Alshon Jeffrey under contract. Thank God we can all, you know, give our military salute and wave goodbye to Nelson Aguilar making $9.4 million, the fourth highest paid player on this team. Ugh. And then you look at uh, the young up-and-coming receivers on our team, Matt Collins and J.J. Arcega Whiteside. Like, come on, man. Like, <laughs> this is horrible. Yeah. I am like this is this is panic. Real, real I mean, quick, can, can I can I hate on Matt Collins for one second? Sure. Have you seen sure. the videos posted by the Eagles social media team, Matt Collins, when he arrives for the game every Sunday? Nah. Every home nah. game, Matt Collins comes in his jogger sweatpants, nice and tight, and he wears the throwback jersey. Where whether it's Ike Reese or Mike Quick or this week he came around the corner and the cameras are ready because they know Max coming to the game in a Trotter jersey and he did a big axe chop points to the nameplate and goes bouncing into the facility. First of all, he's dressed like a fan. Second of all, he stinks. So the comments on that Eagles Twitter post were as you'd imagine, which is we'd rather have Trotter than this bum and tell this guy to make a play before he keeps jumping around like an idiot. Like, yeah. but it's true. Right. Like at some point, as a, as a PR and a media staff, you just yeah. got to cut it out. Like nobody Don't wants have- to see Matt Collins rolling in his Trotter jersey, jumping around yeah. like a donkey when he does not produce on the football field. This is not Nashville. This is not yeah. Los Angeles. This is not Miami. We want production in Philadelphia. Still no catches in six games. Ugh. How's that even possible? I don't know. When you're playing more than 50% of the snaps. I want, How's I want, that even possible? I don't know. I, I want to go back to Wentz real quick uh, and on the regressing yeah. question because I know we got a little off topic. I think there's, and again, I said this before the year started, the thing that worried me about Carson Wentz was the pressure. He puts a lot of pressure on himself. He's a top-notch athlete. That Super Bowl, the Super Bowl victory by the Eagles with Nick Foles at quarterback and Wentz watching was probably the most painful thing that anybody could go through. And at the time, maybe I was misguided in hindsight, but you and I talked about it. We thought, man, everything on the surface was so bubbly. Foles and Wentz, great friends, believers in Christ, blah, blah, blah. They get along. Wentz is right there. He's helping out. He's on the field on the side. What a great guy. He wants Foles to win it all. I don't know that we can believe that anymore. I It, it ate up Carson Wentz inside. It had to. Like, as a competitor, how could it not? And now the pressure, anything less than a Super Bowl in his career, will be looked at as a disappointment. Now, most franchise quarterbacks feel that way. But it's extra painful or extra, you know, the, the temperature goes up a few degrees when the guy, while you were hurt, got it done, especially the franchise's first-ever title. You know, if the Eagles had won two out of three Super Bowls and then Foles picked up another one, like maybe that's gravy. But Wentz has put so much pressure on himself, and to me, Sunday's game was that in a nutshell. It was a microcosm of Carson Wentz. I felt like he never got into a rhythm, and I bet you part of it was just how much he wanted it. It's his only matchup maybe in his career against Brady, right? He missed the Super Bowl, his rookie season, they didn't play the Patriots. This was the first chance, if my math is correct, going back and looking at the AFC opponents, that this was his first and only, probably, chance to play against Brady, unless Brady literally plays till he's 50, which he's talking about, of course. But this was it. This was his chance to beat the quote-unquote GOAT, 
and I think he pressured himself too much. He was too tense. His throws were off the mark, and he never got in a rhythm. So I'm going to chalk up some of this poor game by Wentz's standards to the fact that he put too much heat on himself. But every week that the Eagles' season slips further and further away, and every year he doesn't get it done, that's not going to change. It's going to get worse. The voices, if you will, are going to get louder. And and I agree with you 100%. Those are some valid points, Joe. There's no doubt about it. This guy wanted it. He was pressing a lot. And I kind of equate it to this, man. If people go back, you know, go back into the 90s, right? You had Steve Young take over for a legend in his own right, yep. Joe Montana, yep. right? And people said, oh, is Steve Young ever going to be able to get it done? Is he going to win a title? You know, he's not as good as Montana. And got to equate that. You know, Nick Foles, you know, as much as the um, the resume for the season wasn't a lot, he is still the Super Bowl, the first winning Super Bowl quarterback for this franchise. Yep, and the so MVP. All right, and his legend is just as big. So there's no doubt about it. I, I think when Carson finally gets it done, and I still have strong belief that he will be able to do that, you know, I think it's going to be like the same thing. They're going to show him on the sidelines. And I don't know if people remember, but when Steve Young, when they beat the San Diego Chargers in the Super Bowl, you know, yeah, like Gary Plummer, somebody like, grab that monkey off my back. Because you could just tell it was like just something that was just on his mind. It just, you know, resonated with him his entire career until he was able to have that moment and punch the ticket and get it done. So, yeah, those are all very valid points, man. And and again, but let's here's the deal. This guy's going into the prime of his career. Okay, dear Howie Roseman, okay, dear baby Jesus, hey, can we get this guy some weaponry? Okay, let's not waste his years here. You know, just like we look at a guy like McNabb, when they finally got T.L. and got some good receivers, you saw, you know, what he could do. Yep, so great point. Let's, let, let's not do the old revisionist history and never equip this guy with the weapons he needs to be successful. Because like I said before, earlier in the podcast, like, how can we judge this guy if he is, like, thrown direct? I mean, the numbers don't lie. You know, the numbers do not lie. I mean, these these numbers are historically terrible. It's great. But let's, let's go back to August for just 10 seconds here. Sure. Everybody in Philadelphia, national media, you and I talking about the weapons. How is anybody going to stop this team? You thought thirteen yeah. and three and thirty points a game. I thought eleven and five and a dominant offense. You know, and now this team can't get out of its own way. Nobody is making a play consistently. And even in week one, you know, Deshaun Jackson, yeah, he caught a couple of smaller passes and some first down, but those were two bombs that really obviously changed the complexion of that game and gives the offense a different dynamic. But he's not walking through that door anytime soon. And you know, somebody else has got to find a way to get open down the field and make a play on a contested ball. And I don't yeah. know who it's going to be, but they've got to do it, or this team ain't making the playoffs. And let's and let's face it. I mean, not only that, not only did Sean Jackson get hurt in week two against Atlanta, but so did Alshon Jeffrey. I mean, so who's to say that he hasn't been banged up the entire year? So essentially you've gone through almost an entire football season with your banged up first number one and nine, number two wide receivers, and here lies the blame on Howie not having enough depth at that position. And listen, I would never, you know, I won't say never. I've a, I have don't like questioning the medical staff, but Rick Burkholder was the trainer on this team for a long time, and he's considered one of the best in the business. And yep. he it has not good. been around for a couple of years. For whatever reason, he got gassed. And literally since uh, then... He went, he, he went with Andy to Kansas City. Okay. I was like, yeah, but, but I hear it. But still, like... The, the amount of injuries, like, how does a team get less healthy during the bye week? I just don't understand that. Yeah, it is mind-blowing. And the, and the Deshaun Jackson situation, not forcing him to go under the knife. Sidney Crosby of the Penguins just had a very similar injury. He went under the knife immediately, and he'll be back in six weeks. And now we're going to yeah. – Deshaun Jackson's going to miss literally three-plus months with an injury that would have cost him less than two months of the season. It's unbelievable. Yeah, and I – I looked up Zach Gertz had a sports hernia. Um, you know, this is when Chip was coaching the team. I think he injured his hernia, sports hernia. I think it was week, second week of the preseason, and he was playing in week four of the regular season. Yeah. 
He, he went under the knife immediately and got back in six weeks. All right, let's circle back to the birds with some quick stuff on Seattle in a minute. But I know you want to talk about the Sixers. Sure. Uh, as Fat Andy would say, time's yours. Uh, where do we start? Um, <laughs> this team is, I mean, this team is struggling right now. So they're 8-5. and five. You know, we beat Boston on opening night. Next thing you know, the Boston Celtics have, like, reeled off, like, 11 straight. So, like, 11 and 2. And all of a sudden, the Sixers think that the damn Houston Rockets, they want to throw 35 three-pointers the game. It's like, whoa, why are we trying to be a team that we are not? We are not a good shooting basketball team. We lack shooting. So why would we try to become shooters? It's, it's very odd to me. Um, you know, they've blown games late. I'm still confused about Brett Brown and his hockey-like substitution rotation, but they have to get back to the basics. And What's going to make them successful moving forward the rest of the season is they're going to, number one, have to play some better defense. And that's where they're really going to have to succeed at. But I'll tell you what, you know, I I really wanted Ben Simmons to just come out of the woodwork. Everybody saw the videos. and We've seen Markel Fultz videos in the past. And, Joe, looks like you're already going to win the bet because this guy – not only will he not attempt a three-pointer, he might not even attempt a 17-foot jump shot. So, I mean, the question is, and for me, and this is going to be a big issue moving forward, I don't understand how the guy found the love of the game after he re-signed his contract and he was doing all this practicing. Yet, how does one regress from 59% from the free-throw line and now he is shooting 53%? So now he's shooting even worse. He doesn't attack the rim anymore. He could attack the rim, develop a floater. It's just the same old thing with him, man. And I'm just tired of it. Like, I don't see improvement, you know? You see so many players in this league. You're like, oh, man, wow, look at what he did from year one to year two. Oh, year three, this is the year. This is the year where he's really going to take off, make a statement. Listen, I'm not telling you the guy is not a tremendously talented player. He's a mate. There's so many things that he does well on the basketball court. What I worry about is, can we get it done with him in the long-term future? As I look around the league, they all have guards. They can either, A, take that game-winning shot or get their own shot, or B, be able to facilitate. I don't think Ben Simmons has that in him. And if this guy struggles and doesn't shoot the basketball for another year, what are we going to trade him for? That's why I think if people think they can fix him, I, I'd say maybe you look to unload him and try to get a more natural point guard. I know it sounds crazy, but the other thing is because Embiid Simmons has to operate because he shoots basically, you know, 75% of all his attempts are pretty much in the paint. That clogs up things for Embiid. That's when Embiid starts to flow to the top of the key. So I, I just, I mean, people, I, I called Mike Missanelli from 97.5 last year. I said I would trade Ben Simmons. I'd try to trade with Memphis and see if they would take the number two overall. We could get the number two overall pick and take a kid like John Morant, who's having an excellent rookie season. But I I just don't see it with Simmons. I don't know if we're going to be able to get it done with him if he just has no willingness to shoot. Listen, he doesn't have to make the shot. But it's going to be the same old story. If this team comes up short in the playoffs, it's because of his unwillingness to shoot. Look at a guy like James Harden. Let's say Ben Simmons averages 17 points a game. You look at a guy like James Harden. James Harden gets to the – Ben Simmons, if he wants to get to the free throw line, he can pretty much get there anytime he wants to. A guy like James Harden goes to the line like 12 to 13 times a night. That's why he's able to drop so many points. If Ben Simmons, you know, improved his free throw percentage by 10 percentage points, just shooting under 70%, he probably averaged 25 points a game. But I just don't see it, man. So, listen, it's a long season. You know, we're only 13 games in. There's plenty of time to, to, to get, you know, get moving. But this team likes shooting. And, you know, look at a guy like Tobias Harris. This guy has been played like a max player, and he was struggle city. Now he's coming on a little bit. Had a good game the other night. But it's just and there's a lot of things to worry about moving forward with this team. And, you know, for me, it's been – it's. Ben Simmons, it's like, I just, I don't know if, I just don't, I don't know if we'll be able 
to win a championship with Ben Simmons. I just don't know. Well, that's a concerning thought, or several thoughts, I guess I should say. Part of it, too, is, I think, with Simmons, going back to the mindset, the confidence or lack thereof, you're playing in a big market, you're constantly talked about when things are going great, you love being in Philly, when you can't shoot the ball and you're struggling, you know, the heat gets turned up, and now he's got even less confidence, if that's possible, than maybe he had before. And that's got to be a concern for this basketball team. I'm with you. They're 4-5 and five on the road, which is certainly stunning. They're 4-0 and oh at home, which is nice to see. But right now, fifth in the conference at 8-5, and five, and after, what, a 4-0 and oh start or 5-0 and oh start? Like, they just got to get it together, and they better get it done quickly because all of a sudden you're three games back for the conference lead, and if home, if home court is going to be that big for them, they better get one of the top two or three seeds. I don't even think that, yeah. you know, that's an understatement, but um, – and you look at low. They they were talking about low management. They're like Jim Joel and B down. I'm like, this guy got suspended for two games. Like low management. Like we need to win games now. We need to secure one of those top spots. Yep. And if we're able to do that, I get it back to back. But this is the reason why you have backup players in this place. Like you signed an Al Horford. You signed a guy like Kyle Quinn. You have a young kid from the Delaware Bluecoats, Norvell Pell. Like. Play the guy 20 minutes of the game. When they were down in some of these games and then B didn't play, even if you just threw him in there for like the fourth quarter stretch, maybe the outcomes could have been a little different. Yeah. And I, I so. think the other thing, too, that's concerning as you talk about possibly moving Ben Simmons is are you selling as high as you could have? Probably not at this point. And we right. all know when you sell low, you know, your return, your assets you're getting back aren't that great. At the end of the day, you've, you've maybe wasted a high draft pick if, if it comes to that down the line, whether it's this year, next year, whatever. So. Yeah, well, well, the other thing that sucks is, you know, they were so eager to get his deal done, right? They were so eager to re-sign him when they had some time on the books, you know what I mean? They could have waited, but they were so eager to re-sign him. And who's to say that he wouldn't get that money for somewhere else? The only problem is when you make a trade with teams, all the money has to match up. Yep. So, in return, if you get Ben Simmons out, you need to equate some guys between draft picks and players that make the same type of salary, which becomes a difficult proposition. Yeah. And you're sometimes then taking on another team's trash, essentially. Oh, absolutely. Because they're making no too much about. money. So Exactly. All right, let's jump to a um, a big story in Major League Baseball, and it's sign, uh, sign stealing, which has gone on forever, and it'll never leave baseball. But the Houston Astros may have taken it to another level. And, uh, you know, when former pitchers and, and players on their team, remember the Astros won the 2017 World Series, lost in the 2018 ALCS, lost in the 2019 World Series, so they've had a hell of a run. But for them to have former players being open and honest about the sign stealing using cameras and laptops and then relaying signs from the dugout to the hitters, like it's very damning, especially when there's concrete physical evidence and sort of first person uh witness testimony. Like it's I don't know what Major League Baseball is gonna do. They're obviously conducting a very thorough investigation, or at least you hope they are. The punishment's gonna be steep. I don't even want to surmise of what that white might be. But what do you make of this, John Mita, with the Astros? Being dead to rights right now, from all intent, you know, from everything we can gather so far, that their sign stealing went beyond just, you know, a guy at second base seeing two fingers go down, thinking curveball, and you know, adjusting his helmet or tapping his ear or something. This is legit cameras, technology, banging on trash cans, whistling from the dugout, relaying fastball or off-speed pitches to their fellow hitters. It's it's crazy. I mean, this is. What was the big baseball scam like the nineteen yeah. hundreds or and I, the Chicago I, I think Black it ta- I think it taints the hell out of their World Series. It does. And the question is And their they, run and how good they've yeah. been. Yeah. And what not to say that these guys aren't great hitters, but sure. you know, just just this is just a huge thing for the integrity of the game, right? Nobody we all know what cheating's like, right? You you had the Patriots, we thought they were cheaters, the whole spygate thing, like it's a big deal. And if they do a thorough investigation with Rob Manfred, he came out. He didn't really get into the particulars of what the punishment, but 
it's kind of crazy to me that these former players have just come out and just bashed their organization. Yeah. Like, it, it's pretty wild. Like, what happened there where they're like, all right, we're just going to house them? You know, was it monetary? Was it financially driven? You just don't know. It's kind of crazy. But then I heard this story, like, some of them might have had buzzers in their hand. So, like, they would know. And here's the deal, Mike. You look at the simple game of baseball, right? Okay, we all know how hard it is to hit a baseball coming at 90 miles an hour. But if you know what type of pitch is coming, I mean, there is no greater form of cheating than that. Sure, like, it, it eliminates it, half it, of your bat. Yeah. Well, that's it. And it's like basically stealing someone's playbook or signals, just like the Patriots were accused of. And they, you know, it wasn't really a deep, thorough investigation on their end, but they suffered, you know, financial loss, loss of draft picks. Um, St. Louis, a couple of years ago, they got in trouble for kind of dipping into the database of the Atlanta Braves, you know, with technology. I thought that was the Astros they dipped into. I thought it was a former uh, Astros employee that went to the Cardinals front office and hacked into their server. But regardless, again, it's – listen. Yeah. Eddie Guerrero, the old uh, WCW wrestler, used to say, cheat to win. We all know teams cheat. We know players use steroids. We know that front office members will – lie and twist the truth and injury reports can be forged to try and get an advantage. Like, it happens. I get it. Yeah. And I had a buddy who used to say all the time, he didn't care if his team cheated because everybody else was cheating. He wanted his team to do it better. And <laughs> to some extent, like, I get it. Like, okay, if, for example, the Angels have every player on steroids or the Cubs have every player on steroids, why don't you want your guys then on steroids just to balance the playing field? Like, I see the logic there a bit, but yeah. this is crazy, man. And it, and if they, you know, if they end up officially becoming guilty in the eyes of Major League Baseball and punishments are handed down, you know, they're not yeah. going to strip the World Series title. It is theirs. But my God, so? is it? No, I don't think you so. Don't I, think? You, you can't do yeah. that. I mean, I don't yeah. know how. I don't know yeah. how that can be done. Now the NCAA has done it. You know, like oh, the yeah. USC Louis title Louis. isn't theirs yeah. anymore, but. It's theirs, like, yeah. So I don't know. We'll see. It's, but it's crazy. It is crazy that so much has come out. That so much has already been sort of those firsthand accounts. This isn't speculation. There's video proof. There's, you know, physical proof. There's firsthand uh, accounts of the situation, right? Witnesses, and somebody just rolled back through the 2017 Houston Air, uh, Houston Astros World Series DVD, and as the player's coming up the tunnel, there's a screenshot capture. You can see a laptop right in the tunnel hallway. Yeah, wow. I mean, it's crazy. Yeah. So It is It is nuts, man. It is nuts. It, it sucks, too. It sucks for the Pures fans because, like, we all know what goes on, you know. It all, you know, some form of cheating goes on on a lot of levels. Um, but when it comes down to, like, winning titles, and that might have given you the competitive advantage. Yeah. Just like the Yankees. Are they, weren't the Yankees bitching about them in the ACLS? Yeah. I think they were, you know, they were. that's kind of, I think, how this movement kind of got started. And then, you know, even who was the manager that just got hired by the uh, New York Mets? Yeah, Beltron. He was on that team. Yeah, Carlos, Carlos Beltron. Right. And then Alex Cora. <laughs> is the Red Sox manager. He was also at the Astros then. So you've got three managers now, possibly. They were in on this at some point just a couple of years ago. So it's certainly a situation to um, that I know I'll be following along, and we'll, we'll see what shakes out of it. All right, another national story here on the Brotherly Love podcast was the Browns-Steelers game from a week ago, uh, basically a week ago by the time most of you are listening to this podcast. And... What went down there at the end of the game, most people probably switched it off. I don't know why I stayed with it in the final seconds, but Miles Garrett tried to kill Mason Rudolph, the Steelers quarterback, <laughs> by swinging Rudolph's helmet, which he had just ripped off, at Rudolph's head. Had he hit him with the crown of his helmet, he might have suffered some serious head trauma. He hit him sort of on the underside of the helmet. Rudolph, I don't know how, didn't get a concussion. I would have put him in concussion protocol instantly, to be honest. That's just me. Uh, it was just a crazy situation. It had a feeling to me like the malice at the palace, the old Pistons brawl where they went into the stands where it was just such a gong show on the field and chaotic. Yeah, 15, right? year, it's 
funny. It's funny you bring that up. I think today is the 15 year anniversary. Of there the you go. About. There you go. Hilarious. Here's the one thing yeah. I'll say on from what I saw, and I've got one person to blame off the forefront here, off the hop, and I blame Browns head coach Freddie Kitchens. Right? That's his name. Yeah. Freddie I blame K. Freddie K. Because that game was in hand for the Browns. They were up two touchdowns. There's a couple of seconds left. I know it's a division rival. I know you haven't beaten them since like 1963. I know your team stinks and you're looking for a signature win. But whoever was dialing up those blitzes, whether it's his D coordinator or Freddie Kitchens himself, he needs to look in the mirror. He was blitzing in a two-score game with no threat of the Steelers coming back in the final minute. And Rudolph took shot after shot after shot, and he kept bringing the house. And to me, that shows no respect for your opponent. It shows an inexperienced and immature in some ways head coach. And those blitzes are what got Rudolph crushed multiple times, to which now he's pissed off. He's hot and bothered at the bottom of the pile. Garrett took it a little too far, uh, sort of holding him down. And then what happened transpired based off of emotion and anger and frustration. And to me, the Browns coaches need to be more responsible in that situation. Call off the dogs. Let Pittsburgh throw a couple of out routes, and the game comes to an end. Yeah, I mean, you said it. I mean, you're talking about the last 20 seconds. I mean, it's just incredible to me. I mean, what happens, okay? Team's up two touchdowns. There's 20 seconds left. They're on their own 20-yard line. So they got to get 80 yards in 20 seconds. At that point, you know how it goes. We've seen it with our football team. Like, the guys are even pass rushing. They're not really even trying. Do you know what I mean? Yeah. They're like, yeah. Uh, They'd like they the don't... sack. They'd like the stat, pad their stats. Right. But Sure. But they're know. not really in attack mode. It's more like, all right, let's try to get pressure, but we're not trying to clean your clock and take your head off. So, yes, Freddie Kitchens completely at fault. I also think the NFL is at fault here. I mean – the officials, I and mean, they could have done a better job of trying to get in there. Uh, but the NFL's at fault because once this all transpired, the game was completely out of reach. I don't know what what it is in the rule book, but they should have just called the damn game and sent everyone to the tunnel. You know, the fact that they came out and had to run a couple more plays, and it, it was just a disgrace. I yep. think they handled it poorly. Something is like, the thing that's crazy to me, Joe, it's like, there's so many people that have called the radio stations. I'm listening to Philadelphia, and I don't know what you're getting out there, but it's like, it's like some people are justifying Miles Garrett's behavior. It's like, well, you know, the quarterback should have grabbed his helmet. Like, this dude is a 6'5", 285-pound defensive lineman going against the quarterback. Listen, he would have got a less punishment if he hit the guy, right, if he just would have cold-cocked him, right, Mason Rudolph. When he drugged his helmet off, if he dropped the helmet and just sucker punched Mason Rudolph right in the head, he would have been better off that way as yeah. opposed to then taking a helmet, which most consider assault with a deadly weapon. It's like if you go into your workplace, right, and you take a replica NFL helmet and you bash a coworker, what do you think is going to happen to yeah. you? You're pretty much going to get arrested. Or charged with some type of assault and battery charge. Yeah, and let's look at who. Let's look at had more, way more to lose in the situation. The backup quarterback that, when Big Ben's healthy, won't be starting again, or the first round number one overall pick from a couple years ago, with millions of dollars in his future, uh, future earnings. Like he had way more to lose in the situation, and again, no discipline on a young team with a young coach, where. He just lost his cool. It was totally unacceptable. And and a, yeah. and you want to talk about a black eye for baseball with the sign-stealing controversy, a black eye yeah. for the NFL in a game that should have just ended. And, you know, I, I, I'll i never say poor Cleveland Browns fans because screw yeah. them, but, you know, you got to yeah. feel for them a bit. Like, they finally were going to win a game, and yeah. and instead all that's talked about is a complete disaster and a grease fire of an ending. Well, and they just hurt their playoff chances. I mean, he is the best defensive player on their football team. Yep. And essentially, he will be suspended the rest of the year. Now, he has an appeal hearing yeah, good luck. tomorrow <laughs> with, with with none other than your boy, James Thrash, tomorrow, who is the appeals officer. So, we'll see what happens there. And Runyon is the uh, disciplinary, you know, basically axe man for the NFL. But 
it just it was a terrible it's just so crazy i mean i've never seen anything like it but how do you lose your cool that bad like how do you like it's just it was just wild man maybe we maybe we can get some photos or video of the appeal hearing and if james thrash looks like he's in any type of football shape the eagles can sign him you know, hey, you know what I would sign? I never, I never thought I'd say this, but if I'm the Eagles, I would sign Des Bryant next week. All right, that's it. Uh, we got to go. Podcast over. Uh, <laughs> uh, real right. quick, your thoughts on Eagles, Seahawks, and again, uh, what is uh, shaping up to be one of those backs to the wall? And I'll say this about the birds under Poopy Peterson when they're in these spots, like that Bills game, like the Packers game, where you're starting to write them off where you know they need a win, generally they respond. Can they get it done Sunday at home, but against a quarterback and Russell Wilson, who if I'm at home, the one guy I don't want coming into my barn is this guy, the Seahawks QB. And the other guy we don't want to see is Jadavion Clowney, yep. who last week against San Francisco, the week before their bye, looked like a home record. It just 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 killing Sam Fran's offensive line and making them look silly. And we don't know if Lane Johnson's going to play this week. So it'll be interesting, man. You know, we all looked at it. If that team had any shot, they had to find a way to split one of these yep. two games, and then they got to win the Dallas game. Clearly nothing's impossible. you got to love the fact that the game has been flexed from 8.20 to 1 o'clock, so maybe the early start has Seattle a little rattled. But Russell Wilson right now is one of the MVP contenders. That team looks pretty damn good. And um, and then we'll get to see Josh Gordon firsthand again. And if he comes out as 100 yards receiving and two touchdowns, you know, I might just walk to Jeffrey Lewis uh, or um, Howie Roseman's office that night at the length. I mean, I just – I will lose my mind. But <laughs> anyway, as I digress completely. But another great podcast. Thank you to everyone listening. Joe, why don't you get us out of here? You got it, brother. Always a pleasure. Thanks for tuning in. The Brotherly Love Podcast. Go Birds. Low scoring. Win a squeaker. Maybe 21-20 Birds. Hopefully they can find a way to muster three touchdowns. Get back to uh, 6-5, and five, or I should say go up to 6-5. and five. Cowboys play the Patriots. Who knows? Maybe uh, come Sunday night. It's back to a tie in the NFC East. All right. Uh, good job, Johnny Mita. Love you, brother. Everybody tune in. Appreciate it. Brother Love Podcast. Signing off. Till next time. We'll see you. Thanks for listening to the Brotherly Love Podcast on SoundCloud.com. <laughs>